Welcome once again to The Agent's Angle, the premier podcast bringing you news, views and opinions from the football agents industry. With me, Jonathan Booker. And me, Peter Pello-Logis. In this episode, we will be talking about, yes, you guessed it, the new FIFA football agent regulations, the subject that never goes away, and get an appraisal from a South American perspective on the recent ruling. In addition to that, we're also briefly looking at the FIFA agents exam and the success and failure of candidates from the April 2023 sitting. Also, we'll be concluding our interview with one of the founders of one of the most prominent agencies in the English football agency space. All that to come on the agents angle. Well, here we go again, Peter. The pressure is on, and not so much for us. But more so, the pressure is now on for those who have applied to sit the second sitting of the new FIFA football agents exam in September. Yes, the uh, deadline passed a few days ago at the time of recording this to apply to sit the FIFA agents exam in September, the deadline being 31 July 2023, after which the next exam is supposedly in April 2024. I would say it's certainly high stakes for some if they have existing representation agreements with clients, whether players, clubs or coaches, as technically from the 1st of October, they need to be licensed. There was an interesting article I came across on this topic regarding the pass rate for the April exam in the UK, which stated agents reveal just 18% of UK agents pass the new FIFA test. I'm not sure about this, as I found these figures a little bit low because if you look at the fuller picture more than half past the exam were wide yeah this headline and story just didn't ring true for me on first glance and also from what i've heard my observations and the people i've spoken to including people who took the exam so i've started asking a few questions about it including at the fa in england And although they didn't confirm the actual pass rate in England, they stated the pass rate in England from April's exam, and I quote, was more in line with the global pass rate published by FIFA. So either the pass rates in Scotland, Wales and Northern Ireland were incredibly low to drag down the UK average, something I think is very, very unlikely. Two, this report is utter nonsense. Or three, they've mistakenly referred back to exam pass rates in England before 2015 under the old licensing, where I recall the old agent's exam pass rate in England was alleged to be between 7% and 18% over those years. So it just doesn't ring true for me. Similarly in Australia, in Australia, back pre-2015, the old licences, 5-10% pass rates from those exams, very low back then. But this pass rate here that we've got, and it's got a benchmark figure, it's 52% pass worldwide, the April football agent exam. That's about 1,900 candidates out of 3,800 pass worldwide. But I was interested in these figures, not just the headline figure that FIFA gave us, However, we try to investigate and find national associations to see what their pass rates were. We didn't get the England one, but we did get 10 different countries. And those countries, and I'll go through a a bit of a table from top to bottom. We've got Kenya, 80% passed the exam of the candidates. Australia, 61%. Portugal, 49%. Japan, 40%. India, 33%. Nigeria, 26%. New Zealand, 16%. Zambia, 15.8%. Argentina, only 11.2%. And Morocco, 8%. So that's quite a big variance. I mean, we don't have the figures for the bigger countries, England, Spain, Brazil, Netherlands, even Germany had the exam. Obviously, there's an injunction that's stopping the implementation there, but they did have an exam. We are looking for those figures. There's a big difference here. 80% Kenya, maybe the the numbers were lower, the number of applicants. It's quite varied here. What are your thoughts on these variants of these figures? I'll go back to what I say about stats. And it it comes down to if you've got a relevant data pool. And we're 
we're struggling there to get a true picture of what the pass rates were and how they compare globally. And what doesn't help it is that there's a lot of myth and rumour surrounding these pass rates. Some people are giving one figure, some people are giving another. And to me, that's a problem. It wasn't easy for us to get the figures of national pass rates for the first exam. Many of the national associations, as you've mentioned, and also FIFA, are very reluctant to release national pass rates. That, to me, leaves asking the question, what is there to hide? And I shall use the word again, and it's a favourite thing in football governance, in asking, is this actually a lack of transparency? Yeah, that's interesting. With these pass rates, these 10 that we've mentioned earlier, they came from very reliable sources. Some were in the media, some were from the national associations, and some were from reliable persons for us, close to those national associations. So all those pass rates that we have listed are public or came from reliable sources. You're right, Jonathan, we don't want to see inconsistencies globally in terms of the numbers there. We see 8% and then 80%. We want to see adequate agent representation in all markets. I mean, Argentina, and we've got an Argentine guest later today, 11.2%, that is very low for a market that's very competitive, very export orientated. It's going to affect a broad range of people, not just the agents, clubs and players in Argentina. Because, as you rightly said, it's primarily an export market because of the talented footballers that go to other federations and countries. So it's going to have a knock-on effect in those countries. Yeah, and one thing we haven't taken into account and we haven't mentioned, there are a lot of agents who had the pre-2015 licence called the legacy agents or the legacy licence who have been able to renew that license and that's in the thousands so there are a lot of agents who are continue to be will continue to be in business so that's something we also need to be aware of now we are going back onto the topic of the ffar the, the fifa football agents regulations but we also coming back to matters of the exam and also agent education professional development a forthcoming episode of the agents ankle in particular professional development and agent education so the FFAR won't go away. There's another exam coming Peter, in September. Peter, I have so... to say, the mention of FFAR and FIFA football agent regulations, it's again and again and again. And it's, I'm actually starting to develop a bit of a nervous twitch every time it's mentioned. In fact, for some of the older listeners, the younger ones probably won't remember this, I'm starting to react a bit like Buford T. Justice in Smokey and the Bandit every time he hears the word bandit. Well... You're not going to like this. Actually, you are going to like this. We have a second interview later in this episode. We're getting a South American football lawyer's view on the Court of Arbitration Sport ruling over FFAR and also the possible effect of the FFAR on South America. However, as promised on the last episode, we wanted to bring you the second part of our interview with a very prominent figure in the agent industry in the UK and Europe going back many years, Colin Gordon having covered topics such as agency mergers as well as international negotiations and working with scouts. I started by asking Colin about the impact he feels the FFAR, sorry, Jonathan, may have on the practicalities of being an agent. FIFA's introduced a new FFAR, and I don't want to go too much into the detail, but there's some interesting elements to it, Colin. Two-year contract maximum, which I think is going to be quite interesting how the bigger agents are going to apply that. We've got the caps or commission caps, which may get defeated down the track, but at the moment they're quite 10% if you're a club agent, three to five, five under 200,000, three over that. So there's commission caps. There's an international agents tribunal. There's also compliance because you mentioned before there was a lot of things happening in the industry. There was a transparency, but these regulations talk about a lot of compliance where Individual agents, because it's going to be a personal license, are going to be, have to lodge their rep agreements, their training, their any mandates they get, especially in terms of the brokering. So all that needs to be uploaded in terms of FIFA, but also the national associations who will follow those regulations. The FA has obviously had, I would say, stronger regulations compared to other national associations. Do you see that having an impact should FIFA implement those on the bigger agencies like Keywas, but also on agents generally, or do you think it's just going to be the same sort of landscape? It's going to encourage collaboration between agents. You know, when you say one agent can get 10 and the other can get five and the other can get three, do you know what I heard? I heard 10. I remember going to a, a negotiator, a big player in Europe, and the chief exec who was trying to buy the player opened up by saying, I see this deal is somewhere between 28 and 32 million. And I thought, 
Hmm. I only heard 32 and I'm damn sure the people we're negotiating with only heard 32. So you've got to understand that you can't have discrepancies in percentages on fees and the agents are going to work a way around it. It's too easy. And this is the problem that FIFA have got. And who's going to police it? Well, FIFA is going to be the regulator and also pretty much police. I think the yeah. policing is more about down the track as well about the clearinghouse. There's going to be a clearinghouse set up, a bank, where a lot yeah. of the agent yeah. fees and transactions will go through. But that's for down the track in two yeah. years' time. No, I understand that. But honestly, there's a simple way around most of it as it stands at the moment. Not that I'm actually partaking in it. But I think the best way for all of this, if they're going to put the clearinghouse, is they make the clearinghouse public. They make it transparent and clear on every transaction and make everybody aware what everybody's earning. Let's educate families, educate parents, educate kids themselves as to where their money's going, because at the end of the day, it's their money. Are you seeing more uh, lawyers involved in bigger deals when you were, about when you moved on from Keith and the EPL and what they brought to the table? Or- yeah, I think so. I think that I've seen just recently one or two very good people in the legal industry getting involved in things, and, and rightly so. But I would use lawyers if there was an image rights agreement or if there was a, a particularly complicated deal, I'd use lawyers. But at the end of the day, you're not arguing about the words on a document, you're arguing about the figures. And the ability to get the best figures is based on your knowledge of the industry, your knowledge of your clients, and your knowledge of the need of the person you're negotiating with. It's a negotiation. So a lawyer can say, well, I'm better qualified and I'm far more clean and far more able than any agent in the world. But if you don't understand the industry and you don't understand what the market rate is and you don't understand the qualities of your player and the potential of your player, how do you build a contract? The skill is to understand your client better than the person you're negotiating with and understand their need against your client's abilities. That's a skill set. So that shouldn't be undermined. And that shouldn't be disregarded in any way. It should actually be appreciated and admired. But unfortunately, where the gaps come in is you've got all these people who think I can do that and they can't. So a lawyer's thinking, well, actually, I'm far better qualified. I have my own legal guidelines that I have to adhere to. So that keeps it clean. So I'm as good as these guys. And then nine times out of 10, they are. So if you want me to judge whether a player can go and end the playing at Manchester United or Real Madrid or wherever, and the potential for him to do that and what his contract's going to look like and what their need is and what their... Those things are industry skills that lawyers invariably wouldn't have yet. Not that they can't learn them, but they wouldn't have yet. So I think there's a place in sport for lawyers and there's a place in our sport for lawyers for sure. But the real top level, I would use a lawyer for the skills that they bring that I don't want to make sure the wording's right, but the real skills getting the numbers right, not the words. Absolutely. And I think that element of knowledge, communication, positive collaboration, we've spoke about agents associations of various ilks, and we've spoken about FIFA enough, but you've got a huge breadth of knowledge from the viewpoint of a player and also a coach, and you've been heavily involved with the likes of the PFA and so on and so forth. So When we look at the other stakeholder groups and participant groups, such as the PFA and FIFPRO, and also now, obviously, the likes of the League Managers Association, because under the FFAR, coaches and managers are coming under that. You can probably speak about this better than most when it comes to agents and those other representative associations. Where do you think their role sits moving forward? Well, that's a fantastic question. Um... I do get. I do come up with some of them, yeah. Colin. Well, absolutely. I've always been against the PFA trying to represent players because the time and effort and energies they're putting into a Premier League player, they really are duty-bound to pay the same kind of attention to a person that might be playing in the National League because they are still members of their association. I think that the PFA should be policing the industry and protecting the rights of their members. And therefore, I was always against this idea that the PFA should be representing players. And the thing is, if you're going to represent a player properly, how can the PFA phone up to move one of its players to another club? It's just not doable, you know, because they're breaking all sorts of regulations and causing themselves all sorts of trouble. Because your job is to phone people and make people aware that your player would like to move on for the benefit of his career. The PFA can't do that. It's just not on. They should be looking out for the best interests of their members and they should be protecting their members from bad decisions, from bad relationships and bad decisions. They should be educating their members and the parents of their members as to what is good practice, what is good industry practice 
and what they should be looking out for. The LMA, again, they went through a spell where they thought they could represent their managers, which I find that's very, very difficult because they might have five members all really suitable for one job. How do they actually operate under a preference? Who's the perfect one? Who's the best one? How can they say? The LMA, again, should be looking at building relationships within the industry for the betterment of the sport. They should be looking out for the managers and their contracts and looking at issues that arise in contracts. And I know that they do that very, very well. Well, certainly when managers are coming out of jobs, they're very, very good on that side. So I think, again, that they should be there as a a support, not too dissimilar to the PFA for the managers. And I think also a transparency on managers now with regards to relationships with agents is important as well, because obviously a manager has a lot of influence, not as much as they used to because of technical directors now, but certainly a, a lot of influence on who they sign. And obviously, if there's a certain favoritism towards one agency that happens to be the agency that represents them as well, that is not questionable. It should be looked at. We should be scrutinized. We should be aware. So, you know, those areas, I think the LMA should be looking to police and to be providing a service to the game. Absolutely. You won't find me disagreeing in any sense on that. It really is time for so many stakeholder groups to stop shall we say, talking the talk when it comes to agents and really walking the walk and shouldering that responsibility. Now, onto a positive note, with all your experience of the industry, I've got to ask, what are you doing now in terms of projects? We know you're still involved in the areas of football in so many guises, but where are you going forward now? Um, I'm just basically now coming out, obviously I came out like a brief hiatus and bought a football club, which wasn't greatest thing I've ever done uh, but I come back into the into the business now and, and, and just building those relationships football's changing it's changing enormously I think we're on the verge of a digital revolution so that may affect so many different areas it certainly will affect the uh, earning potential of top talent and then look what's happening in now in the Middle East that's not going to go away um, so re- basically I'm just enhancing and building and growing the relationships that I've had and that brings opportunities that could be mergers and acquisitions for you know for, for for multi clubs ownerships and things like that. It could be looking to sell top players or buy top players for for clubs. Uh, it could be really looking closely at how the uh, metaverse is going to change the player's image with regards to image rights and everything else going forward. And I know that there are groups out there looking to acquire image rights of players because they can see how things are going to change. Because I think we're a little bit behind as usual in football. It'll arrive on us before we know it, and then we'll change how we watch football, how we advertise through football, and how we use and utilise the players um, to the the best the, the best use um, within within the, the the new digital agents on us as well. So everything football, really, Jonathan, I think is the is the answer. I'm not going to step outside my comfort zone. This is the only industry that I've known. And I will look at opportunities and help in any way that I can. And uh, what I do find very interesting is when I find that people kind of purporting to have this kind of knowledge and being used in the roles. And I'm thinking, how on earth did anybody think that that would work? Uh, and I'm sure you're the same. But in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. And there's a lot of uh, one-eyed men out there, <laughs> if I can put it as uh, <laughs> diplomatically as that. Just a couple of two last two short questions, Colin. Yeah. I'll, I'll ask them together. Okay. If you had one wish for the football agent industry, what would it be? And the second question, is there any player deal negotiation that you recall that was very difficult and maybe because of the, the player that you really worked hard on and you're proud of? Oh, well, um, the wish for the football industry, um, purely transparency. And I think that's so easy to do because I think it's so easy to copy a lot of good models that are set up already, certainly in the States. And so transparency. I don't want to hear about undisclosed transfer fee or I I want to know absolutely everything. And the public, in this day and age, everybody, it should be made available to everybody. And then when you do that, you'll smell something that's not right. You will see it and smell it, something that's not right. Um, Wow. The hardest deal I've ever been involved with was doing um, Hiditoshi Nakata to uh, Perugia because he was bigger than the emperor in Japan. And the image agreement on that, I remember us being locked in a room for 24 hours, nonstop. And I just basically flopped when I just ex- 
exhausted and we finally got it over the line and he proved to be a you know a huge success in Serie A and I was delighted for him he's such a lovely lovely man a man that's not absolutely in love with football just happened to be supremely talented but a genius of a person and that was a lot going away way back but that will always be probably the most difficult deal that I've had and, and an honest difficult deal I've had deals that have lasted six weeks that should have lasted six seconds because you're dealing with incompetent people who don't know what they're doing. And I've had many, 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 many of those because unfortunately you're going to come across those on numerous occasions and football is littered with them. But the one genuine one where there was a genuine honesty in the whole process and that was dealing with uh, with Alessandro Gucci, I, I really liked it, uh, Perugia, and dealing with Hiditoshi Nakata and these people. And that was the real, because... That was really challenging for a young agent, really to go in depth into seriously, how is this image rights agreement going to work? Because that was more of a commercial agreement than it was a football agreement. So that was the most challenging and actually at the end of it, the most rewarding. And then to be sat there in the first game he played against Juventus, he scored two and I sat next to the president and he got a phone call from Man United inquiring if they would sell him on that day for double what they paid for him. And I thought, well, that was probably still to this day, is probably the most rewarding one I've been involved in. Fascinating story. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you to Colin um, for coming onto the show. Uh, Jonathan, any last words? No, no. From me, Colin, thank you for agreeing to do this. Um, It's much appreciated. And as ever, I wish you all the best going forward. Thank you, guys. I really enjoyed it. Good. And now I'm going to find out what the cricket score is. (laughs) Don't mention the cricket. Peter and I have a, a, well, an unwritten agreement that we don't talk about cricket okay that's cool cheers peter thanks very much mate speak to you thank you so much thank you so much cheers john and there we have it the second part of the interview with colin gordon as promised and despite me knowing colin for quite a few years now it's always fascinating to hear his view and gain from his experience, not just as an agent, but also the other roles he has fulfilled in the agent industry and football as a whole. But even with all that experience, it also seems Colin is understandably uncertain of what the future is for the football agent industry under the cloud that lurks on the horizon from the uncertainty surrounding the new FIFA football agent regulations. Yeah, absolutely, Jonathan. We are trying our best to predict what may happen and more importantly prepare for the effects of FFAR come October and beyond. So whether you're an agent, a player, a club, a coach, a manager, a wide variety of other football participants, stakeholders, we're all affected in this new change come October. Now, I did my best last week, present a brief synopsis on the FFAR and the Court of Arbitration rule in relation to PROFA, which is Professional Football Agents Association, challenge to the FFAR. We wanted to bring you, the listeners, an independent appraisal of the ruling and the arguments presented by Profa to the CAS. Last week, we didn't quite manage it, but we did this week, and we also get a bonus with our guest on this topic as he's able to bring an additional perspective from a South American angle. Moreover, I would say he's also got a very interesting anecdote featuring one of the most famous players in the world, Maradona. Our special guest to discuss the Court of Arbitration of Sport Decision in Profa v FIFA from an independent and, should I say, South American view is Guido Jose Jamer. Guido is a sports lawyer based in Buenos Aires, Argentina. He has written for the preeminent football law journal, Football Legal, and worked on sports law matters in the Argentinian football and sporting space. Guido has also an interesting anecdotal story how he got into sports law and now works for one of the biggest law offices in Argentina in relation to sports. Guido, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Good. Hi, Peter, Jonathan. Thank you for having me. Yes, as you said, I'm I'm based in Buenos Aires, Argentina. And how I got into the world of football was uh, in the year 2009, I was introduced to Jorge Sistarpiller, who was Diego Maradona's first agent. And uh, he's considered one of the pioneers of the activity and, and, and the industry. He gave me an internship for a few months. And after a few months, he was happy with the performance. So he offered me a job. And I was uh, lucky enough to have the opportunity to work for him for, for a few years until his his passing away, sadly, a few years back. And since 2020, I've been an, an associate attorney 
at a rec sports law firm here in Argentina, which is run by Ariel Rec, who's also an author for Football Legal and, and, and runs important cases in, in the world of football. We really appreciate you coming onto the show, Guido, and really to give us your insights. And yes, um, very, very interesting anecdote. And yet we do know Ariel. Um, he's probably one of the most renowned sports lawyers from South America, but also very renowned in Europe and with FIFA as well. Can you give our listeners a little summary of the decision in the Court of Arbitration Sport between PROFA and FIFA? There were three arbitrators who made that decision and how that decision was made by the three arbitrators? Yeah, of course. First of all, uh, it's important to to point out that the, the points of arbitration were actually agreed upon between PROFA and, and FIFA. So there was a lot of consensus between the parties as to the rules of, of the arbitration that, that were involved in the decision making. As to the decision itself, um, I wasn't surprised by the decision. Uh, this is, of course, a personal view, but I did not see CAS issuing a ruling against uh, the rules because it would have been a precedent placing CAS as sort of an ad hoc supranational constitutional tribunal, and it would have undermined a little bit CAS's position as maximum arbitral uh, tribunal of sport and, and its legitimacy with sport federations in general, because those sort of decisions would be reserved for, for a constitutional tribunal in, in ordinary courts and, and not for an arbitral tribunal such as, such as CAS. The main claims uh, of PROFA go against the service cap fee, of course, is, is included in Article 15 of the FIFA Football Agent Regulations. Uh, certain rules regarding the fees included in Article 14, such as the mandatory trimestral installments uh, for payments of agent fees, that the agents receive the fees subject to actually perceived remuneration of the players, um, which goes in line with the, the provisions that the agent is not entitled to receive the fee if the player transfers to another club or terminates the contract uh, without just cause. Uh, there were claims also against the prohibitions of dual representation uh, are included in Article 12 of the, the agent regulations. There were there was a claim against the um, disclosure and publication rules of Article 19 of the FAR. And there was also a claim uh, regarding a, an eligibility requirement uh, in Article 5. But we're not going to go into that because uh, for some reason, CAS didn't address that particular issue in, in the award. Um, just a small disclaimer for the audience. There were several aspects of Swiss law and also minor aspects of French and Italian law and the MLS uh, collective players bargaining agreement that were brought up by the parties and addressed by CAS. But the main reasoning of CAS uh, addressed the relationship between the agent regulations and European Union competition law. So we're just going to focus mainly on that. But of course, if any members of the audience want to uh, review the award more thoroughly. They're more than welcome to to go directly to the award. It has a lot of interesting uh, details that we're just not going to be able to cover in, in the present interview. So going specifically into the service cap fee, what Profa states regarding the service cap fee is that FIFA has a dominant position in the global market for organization and marketing of football competitions and that it has abused its dominant position in the adoption of ceilings on agent fees and restrictions on freedom of representation, thus breaching European legislation on competition. Profa states that the service cap fees impose unfair conditions on small and medium-sized agents uh, by creating factual conditions that deprives them from earning reasonable living and even covering costs. Uh, they impose unfair and discriminatory differentiation between agents representing engaging entities and those representing the releasing entities. And the service cap fees equate to horizontal price fixing, which is prohibited by European competition laws, and they prevent agents from substantially competing on price. Then regarding the prohibition and restrictions on dual and triple representation, um, this so that the audience has, has an idea of what it refers to. Article 12 of the FIFA agent regulations prohibit for an agent representing a releasing entity, that is the club that is selling the player or that is lending the player out on loan, to represent also the player or the engaging or the purchasing club in a specific transaction. 
Profa claims that this is an unfair disadvantage to agents re representing releasing entities or selling clubs who may not also represent the player as opposed to agents representing the engaging entities. Then there were some, some submissions made on the prohibition of unlicensed individuals providing agent services. Um, this uh, profa says that it's a prohibition um, that obstructs the access of agents to the market because it doesn't allow them to rely on unlicensed employees to provide the, the agent services. And finally, the party submissions regarding uh, the article on the disclosure and publication of information such as the name of agents, client lists, services rendered to each client, sanctions and transaction details. Profa claims that this article breaches European general data protection regulations, fundamental rights to privacy and protection of business secrets, and that there are more proportionate measures available, such as the confidential transmission of information and contracts to a special supervisory authority. With these submissions in, in, in hand, how did the CAS reason to find that the FIFA agent regulations are legal and, and, and valid and proportionate? Uh, CAS pointed out, based on uh, European Court of Justice case law, that FIFA is what can be considered as an association of undertakings. And what is an association of undertakings? It's an entity that is involved in economic activity and that assumes the responsibility of representing and safeguarding the collective interests of its members. And as a association of undertakings, CAS understands that FIFA may, in adopting the agent regulations, justifiably pursue public interest objectives recognized by the European Union's legal order and even if the contested provisions, even if the contested provisions of the FIFA agent regulations may be liable to infringe European Union competition law, so long as these provisions are appropriate and proportionate to achieve the intended objectives, such infringement would be justified by law um, because of um, this legitimacy that FIFA has as an association of undertakings. So... CAS continues to reason, um, applying case law of the European Court of Justice, mainly two cases which we're not going to go into, uh, but are the Mecca Medina case and the Wouters case. And these cases provide a framework to examine whether or not the FIFA age regulations are uh, legal according to European case law. Going into the service cap fees, uh, CAS says that these are not a measure restrictive of competition. Um, it is not a price fix in itself, but it may have a restricting effect on competition by limiting pricing possibilities of agents and forcing them to a focal point competition below the service cap line, facilitating collusion between agents. Cass points out that in a market in which the supplier holds a strong position, there is a higher risk that the maximum resale price will lead to its uniform application by resellers. And there is strong evidence pointing in that factual direction in the agent's market. Nonetheless, Cass considers that the service cap fees are not discriminatory because they impose dissimilar conditions to dissimilar transactions. And this is in accordance with European competition law. So the first question, do service cap fees pursue legitimate object objectives? Cass answers, yes, they do. The transfer market is integral to team composition and thus determines performance of teams in national and international competitions. And CAS considers that the service cap fees seek to correct reported and proven market failures and to ensure proper functioning of the transfer system. And that the objective, the objective is legitimate and that several subsidiary goals listed in the award have also been recognized by European Union courts. Um, CAS also considers that the measures in Article 15 and in the foreign general are appropriate to set objectives because the service cap fees shift incentives from a business model largely based on transaction fees to a more comprehensive model where the agents can charge their clients for each of the services provided. That is, agent services on one side and other services on the other. And CAS points out that the service cap uh, also protects players by limiting conflicts of interest, unethical conduct, abusive practices, 
uh, promotion of contractual stability, and that FIFA has effectively demonstrated that the prospect of higher agent fees incentivizes agents to generate more transfers. Um, and the final question regarding the service cap fees, are these service cap fees proportionate to the alleged objectives? And again, answer, uh, CAS answers that yes, they are, uh, because the caps only apply to agent services. They don't apply to other services that agents can also provide to their clients. And um, CAS um, reasons that the 3 to 6% cap of lower fees applicable to agents representing individuals uh, or engaging entities reference to annual remuneration of the player per year of contract, which means that those agents may effectively receive more agent fees than those representing the releasing entity in the same in the same transaction because they receive a an up to 10% of the transfer as a one-off compensation. And also at this point, uh, CAS also pointed that FIFA provided evidence that the average service fees of agents were at first sight excessive in relation to the player's income and that the fee caps are proportionate to, for example, the 3% of fee cap in the NFL, uh, the four percent uh, in the NBA, ten percent of the play of the players' remuneration in Portugal, eight percent in Greece, and, and so on. Regarding another controversial aspect of of these new regulations, which is the prohibition and restriction on dual and triple representation, um, CAS considers that these are not an abuse of dominant position, as they prohibit multiple representation in a single transaction where the conflict of interest is unavoidable. That is because the releasing entity or the selling club or the club that is lending the loan seeks to maximize transfer fee and the player and the and the player's new club seek to minimize it so the conflict of interest is unavoidable um these restrictions cas understands that allow for the interests of their of the agents and their principles to align and thus the measure is appropriate for the pursuit objectives and it is proportionate because they take a gradated approach based on uh, what what party the, the agent is, is representing. Um, and finally, an important aspect of, of, of the award that was, uh, that, that was approached by the CAS is uh, the validity of Article 19 regarding the disclosure and, and publication of, of information. And in this point, CAS reasoned that uh, Article 7 of the Charter of Fundamental Rights of the European Union, which is the respect of private and family life, and the European General Data Protection Regulations do apply to the FIFA agent regulations. Uh, CAS considered that Article 19 is uh, a disposition that is general, incomplete, and vague, but nonetheless, FIFA's data processing under Article 19 is, in first instance, uh, lawful. Uh, and CAS considers that uh, the interest of, uh, of the agents and, and the fundamental rights and, and freedom of the agents cannot override the pursuit of the legitimate objectives uh, stated by FIFA in, in, in the FAR because they can reasonably expect at the time and the context of the collection of personal data and that that processing uh, will take place. But CAS does warn that any processing of data, and this is probably the, the strongest point that CAS made against the, the FIFA agent regulations. This is this is why I'm, I'm stopping in this particularly. Um, CAS said that any processing of data must be limited to necessary information. So it goes on, it, it goes into Article 19 and it analyzes the different um, the different information that Article 19 uh, requires of agents. And it starts analyzing whether it is necessary or not. And CAS considers that uh, all the information uh, required uh, in Article 19 is necessary except for the details of all transactions involving football agents, including the service fee amounts paid to football agents. Why? Because in contrast to, to the other information required in the, in the article, CAS considers that the disclosure to football agents of the details of the services provided to each client does not appear to be necessary and proportionate to ensure compliance with any particular provisions of the agent regulations. And on the contrary, the disclosure of such information would qualify as a restriction of competition under European law because it would remove strategic uncertainty over important competitive conditions in the market of football agent services, and it would incentivize collusion, which will go against other general objectives of, of the FAR, such as protecting consumers. 
this was the main, uh, I believe, was the main objection of the award against the FIFA age regulations. Uh, and and I think these were the main points in the award. I just want to touch on a few points that you made. Firstly, the CAS arbitrage looked at uh, European Union law. There are quite a few other cases going to the European Court of Justice. There's a case in Belgium. There's a case in Switzerland. I believe there's a Rule K arbitration in England. And also there was an injunction in Germany which stopped the implementation of the regulations in Germany. Will the CAS case and the jurisprudence come out of this arbitration, you think, influence or affect those other cases? I don't think that that it that it will necessarily affect it. I mean, those courts, of course, uh, I don't think that they will ignore the fact that CAS has decided this. They will surely read the CAS award and then take into consideration several of the points. Ultimately, all these different cases are going to go up the ladder and the final and binding decision is going to stand with the European Court of Justice. Uh, but this decision may take up to 15 or 18 months on average. So in the meantime, I think that there are going to be dispar um, solutions in ordinary courts. Thank you for that, because that's basically a lot of uh, our viewers or listeners are very interested in see how, because there's a lot of cases around, how the CAS case impacts that. But just turning our attention to South America or the Conmebol nations, this decision, how does that affect... Argentina or other South American nations, and in particular, the national law or legislation, and especially on the cap. So we know that in a lot of countries, caps are unenforceable because of competition law. There are several countries that have come to mind that you can't implement a cap. But what about in South America? Is it seen as proportionate? How would Argentina or some of those jurisdictions in South America deal with um, this decision? Okay, so I'm going to focus mainly on Argentina, which is where I practice law, but I believe that many of these observations can be extrapolated to the rest of the nations in in South America. So first of all, Argentina is is an export nation. We export players. So our agents, they mainly depend on the legislation and the rules that are going to be in place in the countries where we export the players. In Argentine jurisprudential tradition, the, the tradition on competitive Uh, law and jurisprudence and competition is not as strong as it is in Europe and as it is in the United States. And in the public eye, the agents are generally not well seen because in the past they have uh, had problems with transactions and operations being sidelined in order to avoid certain obligations. So I do not see a court of law issuing a ruling against the cap here in Argentina. And I definitely don't see Congress or the government issuing public policy against the FAR. Argentina will fall in line with whatever happens in, in, in Europe in this regard and with whatever FIFA decides. Uh, I believe that the rest of the nations in South America are in, in sort of the same place. And then this is just a personal consideration. Because of the idiosyncrasy uh, of this particular country, I believe that Brazil is probably the only nation where they could have certain normative o- autonomy to, to depart from the provisions of, of the agent regulations. But as of this time, and to the best of my knowledge at least, I don't think that there is anything uh, that shows that anything like that is bound to happen in the future. Is it accurate to say that there aren't any challenges as far as you're aware to FFAR within South America at this point? Not to the best of my knowledge, not that I know of. Just going back to what you said about the, the CAS hearing, and I think it's something that might have been misunderstood from those who aren't of a legal background. When you said there was a a pre-agreement between PROFA and FIFA, that was pretty much to do with, shall we say, the rules of engagement, how the arbitration would be undertaken, more so than, as some might have suggested, that there there was almost a deal done beforehand between the two parties. All they basically agreed was the, the rules of the process. Would I be correct in that exactly yeah the, the rules of the process and the scope of the understanding of uh, of the cast panel in mm-hmm. analyzing the whole situation so it's rules of engagement of course they, they did not agree to an award the award was issued by the panel independently you know i want to move a little bit away from the decision how do you see the ffar but also um fifa's the, the, the implementation from say the first of october on argentina and the agent industry all the south american agent industry just generally I know that Argentina and South America is a little bit different to Europe and um, the way that agents work, but how do you see this impacting the agent industry generally in your own view? 
Yeah. So um, talking to my clients here in Argentina, the, the main dispositions that bother them or, or that raise up issues, practical issues mainly, are uh, this prohibition on representing the releasing entity and the player. Many of the agents, when they sign up players to, to clubs, they receive what is called what are called the, the sale mandates from, from the clubs. So they're not going to be able to exercise those sale mandates anymore after October 1st. Uh, because it is prohibited. Also, the FAR, they they introduced this new figure of what it is the the associated agent uh, or the connected agents, and a lot of these, a lot of these agents they work together. So these connected agents are not going to be able to to work on more than one transaction in in a twenty four months. Uh, so that also raises practical problems that are going to have to be addressed by the clients in their human relationship and their commercial relationship with with colleagues. And also there is a small detail of the agent regulations which allow for a player to close a deal without the intervention of their uh, exclusive agents. Do you think it also will affect smaller agents in terms of the way business is done? In terms of small agents, you might see uh, agents working together or getting together in bigger agencies. Do you think that may happen also there's a that's discussion of that in, in Europe and even in Australia and Asia, but do you think that may also apply to South America? It may, but again, it's it's speculative. It may, but we just we'll just have to wait and see what happens in practice. It's that wait and see again, isn't it, Peter? Wait and see with the FFAR. We've been <laughs> waiting and seeing since 2018, and we're still waiting and seeing. And uh the next couple of months are gonna be really, really interesting. Well, we're not far away. October the first. We're already in August, so it's it's coming, and um, everyone's got to adjust. and And a lot, a lot more prospective agents are going to sit the exam in September. So, interesting time ahead. But thank you, Guido. This has been fantastic, really informative. You broke down very simply the decision because most people won't read the eighty nine pages unless you're a lawyer and really to understand it from the four five major points. You really need someone to really break it down. I think you've given us a fantastic overview, but also the key points. Absolutely. A lot of these documents we go through, and I think for those not of a legal background, it can be quite daunting. You you will get a lawyer in to assist you with that. And so to have somebody who knows what they're talking about break it down for us from a totally neutral perspective we're really grateful for that, Guido, and I'm sure the listeners are as well. One last question, Guido. Do you think these new regulations, should they come on foot um, on the 1st of October, will require agents to use football lawyers or sports lawyers more in the future in terms of deals and players and also protecting themselves, as you mentioned earlier, with clients having an ability to be a little bit autonomous, clients as in players and coaches, maybe even clubs? Well, I certainly hope they do because uh, that's what I do for a living. So <laughs> I knew you would say that. There, there you go, guys. You got the plug in. The lawyers got the plug in, <laughs> listeners. Yeah. <laughs> um, but also, when you're dealing with situations like this, and of course with players and transfers, you are dealing with somebody's livelihood. So it, it's it is the right thing to get the professional legal advice in to assist you with that. In, in general, in life, don't don't persign with the lawyers. We're, we we bring more solutions than problems. Thank you. And on that, um, we appreciate you coming on, Guido, and I um, hope to see you again. Thank you. All right. Fantastic. Thank you for hosting me. Thank you for your time, Guido. Bye-bye. I have to say, Peter, I found that really useful from Guido, and it actually highlighted two very important points for me that need to be taken into consideration. The first being that the ruling wasn't necessarily dismissing Profer's case in its entirety. For example, the application requirements for new agents to apply for the exam and also subsequently for a license, those were raised by Profer and they've not been dismissed entirely, so it would seem. And the second thing is the fact that the agreements between FIFA and Profer weren't agreements regarding the actual outcome but more so the process of the hearing. Something that, for whatever reason, others have insinuated were part of some shady deal between FIFA and Profa. But from a legal perspective, what are your main takeaways from Guido's commentary? Firstly, I think Guido broke it down very well, and uh, we're really grateful for his analysis and also his 
presentation on this podcast. For me, it indicated this decision and the three CAS arbitrators that the FFAR are proportionate and valid regulations in terms of the football agency profession worldwide. The FIFA undoubtedly is the regulator. However, as Guido pointed out, and a lot of us are of the view, the European Court of Justice can make a different decision. It's it's jurisprudence. It's a persuasive decision. But ultimately, European competition law applies here, or antitrust law, depending which part of the world you are, and they can make a different decision. So it's not over yet. However, it was very interesting for me how Cass saw the cap and talking about the cap that you can have people can compete under the 5% or the 3% or the 10. And we've got four different segments of the cap. So it actually has different elements of the competition. That was quite interesting. I never thought of it that way. However, I still think the cap will maybe in some other ruling be attacked and maybe dealt with in a different way or in a different interpretation. Now, with Guido, obviously he's looking, he looked at it from a South American perspective how it applies to Argentina or South America. And it was very interesting. He mentioned Brazil. Brazil can be their own sort of novel, have a novel way of dealing with FFAR, maybe similar to France and Italy. Overall, I think the presentation, very straightforward by Guido. I agree with a lot of his analysis, but as we've discussed, Jonathan and everyone out there, that this is not finished. And there are maybe eight, nine other cases out there, including one in England, that could have a big bearing of where these regulations go. Now, I have to say that with Guido and with Colin, this has been a very compelling but exhausting episode of The Agent's Ankle. I think we all agree there's a lot to take in, a lot to digest, but some fantastic information about the agent's world and what's affecting the agent's space. And we don't intend for all episodes to be as long or as intense as this. And as we mentioned, we don't intend to cover FFAR in every episode. But it's important we bring to you the relevant facts and the relevant topics so that you understand better what's happening in the football agent space right now. Yeah. And as such, if you as listeners, all our listeners out there, want anything clarified, expanded upon, or did anything specific agent-related topics covered or guest invited on future episodes, then please do not hesitate to drop us a line. We'll do our very best to accommodate everyone. And we've actually got some very exciting non-FFAR and a lot of new exciting topics about the agent space. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on all main podcast platforms such as Google, Amazon, Apple, and of course, Spotify, as well as smaller or more niche ones. And let your friends, please, and colleagues know about the show. Please share. Bye for now from me. Bye, folks, and take care of yourselves. The purpose of the Agents Angle podcast is to provide news, information and facilitate discussion on regulatory matters, policies, business trends and issues affecting football agents worldwide. The opinions and recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only and should never be considered legal or professional advice. Furthermore, the views expressed by guests are their own and their appearance on the program does not imply an endorsement of them or any entity they represent. Thank you for listening.